All right, hey guys, good to be back with you for what I'm hoping is the last time for quite a while. Um, if you remember, we started doing these online services last year and I've been filming these Luke sermons all over the place, right? I've been in my house and my apartment here in a bunch of different spots. I've been in my van. I was at the fireplace in front of my brother's house, right? So we've been kind of all over and we've been teaching the book of Luke. Um, but today I'm hoping is the last one for a while because next week we start meeting uh, Sunday mornings again. So we're going to be meeting at 1030 at the Powell location. The the, the gathering will start just about 1030. Um, and so we ask, you know, if you're one of our regulars, try to get there a little bit early for these summer gatherings just to, um, you know, in case a guest shows up or, you know, as we start to grow. Um, we, you know, we want to be there on time, right? That's a good thing. So um, get there a little bit before 1030. We'll get started at 1030. We'll probably go just about an hour. Um, I'm really looking forward to these summer sessions. We've been calling it like diet church. You know, we're doing sort of a pared down Sunday gathering with some campfire style singing and that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys next week and to never editing one of these videos again. Um, let's see. So for the last video, I chose the city, the black city hat. I know you guys are real excited to see what hat I'm going to be wearing this week. Um, uh, you know, I love the, these hats that say the city. I have a blue one too, but you know how we all call San Francisco the city. I'm, you know, like I'll be at a pastor's conference or something and somebody, where are you from? Oh, I'm from the city. Oh, I'm confused. Oh, I mean, uh, San Francisco, right? We're not in the Bay Area anymore and you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, this is my Warriors city hat. Uh, I love it. So it's a good one to end uh, our our little bit on here. So today what we're going to do, we're going to read the last bit of Luke chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and you can follow along with us. And um, we're finishing the book of Luke and what we're going to, I'm sorry, the book of Luke. Yeah, right. You wish we were finishing the book of Luke. We're going to be in the book of Luke till uh, your grandkids have grandkids. Um, anyway, we're going to finish Luke chapter 9 today. Um, and then when hopefully we jump back into the book of Luke after the summer sessions, we'll jump back in in September and we'll talk about Jesus sending the 72 and how that's what kind of church we want to be. But today we're going to read about some of these disciples of Jesus or would-be disciples of Jesus and some of their excuses. Now, what is an excuse when we talk about an excuse? Um, a great example is um, I want to show you a clip from an episode of Seinfeld. So I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to drop that clip in uh, right here. Come on, let's go do something. I don't want to just sit around here. Okay. Want to go get something to eat? Where do you want to go? I don't care. I'm not hungry. <laughs> we go to one of those uh, cappuccino places. They let you just sit there. What are we going to do there? Talk? <laughs> we can talk? I'll go if I don't have to talk. <laughs> we'll just sit there. Okay. I'm going to check my machine first. someone up at airport, jury duty, waiting for cable. Okay, just hand that over, please. Oh, what is this? It's a list of excuses. It's for that guy Hornick who's at the game tonight with my tickets. I have that list now, so in case he calls, I just consult it, and I don't have to see him. I need it. What are you doing? I got some for you. Oh, I don't need any more. No, no, no. Listen, listen, uh, you ran out of underwear, you can't leave the house. Very fun. <laughs> How about you've been diagnosed as a multiple personality? You're not even you. You're Dan. I'm Dan. Can I have my list back, please? Here, here. Jerry Seinfeld, 
Gerald, I cannot believe you're doing. This is absolutely infantile. What can I do? Deal with it. Be a man. Oh, no. <laughs> no that's impossible. I, I'd rather lie to him for the rest of my life than go through that again. He was crying. Tears. Accompanied by mucus. All right. You guys have seen me preach in front of the Kramer picture in the other room, right? Uh, you guys know I love Seinfeld. Uh, that was actually the second episode of Seinfeld uh, after the pilot. So it was the first kind of real episode of Seinfeld. Um, and the premise of that is hilarious. By the way, I hope they don't give me like a copyright claim or something. I just pulled that off. The, I have the whole DVD set of Seinfeld, of course. Anyway, so I just pulled that off. Uh, but the premise is really funny, right? Like the the Jerry has a friend he grew up with, but he doesn't really want to spend time with anymore. But he doesn't want to tell him to his face. Um, and in the end of the episode, he kind of breaks up with the guy like a... Anyway, it's a funny episode. But think about it. Like at its core, what is an excuse? An excuse is this. You don't want to do something. Uh, but you don't want to tell somebody that you don't want to do it for a couple of reasons, right? You don't want to admit it. You don't want to hurt their feelings. You're lazy, whatever it is. And so you make up an excuse. And that's what Jerry was doing here, right? With all these different excuses, because he, he eventually gets to it. But for the most part, he just doesn't want to tell. Uh, I think the guy's name was Horneck or something. He doesn't want to tell him. Dude, I don't want to be your friend anymore, right? Until the end when he breaks up with him. And it's hilarious. Go watch the whole episode. It's pretty funny. Um, but... There's, this, there's actually um, like a bunch of examples. I kind of had to whittle this down, but there's a bunch of examples of people doing this with God. And this is where it gets dangerous. Um, like you make an excuse with God as if he doesn't know what's really going on in your heart. So like, let me just give you three quick examples. Um, one of them was the um, uh, very beginning of the Bible, right? When God confronts Adam and Eve about the sin of eating the fruit off of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat. He's like, hey, did you guys eat the fruit? And Adam, like in one of the most... Um, uh, angry or, um, you know, upsetting parts of the Bible where this guy's just a real turkey. He, he completely passes the buck. Did you guys eat the fruit? Well, yeah, but I mean, the wife, and I, I love the way he says this too. Like, by the way, who you gave me, God, the wife, right? She's the one who made me do it. So God goes to the, the wife, goes to Eve. Did you eat the fruit? Well, yeah, but the snake made me do it, right? The serpent made me do it. Just passing the buck, excuse after excuse. None of this was my fault, right? Or jump forward, right, to, to Moses um, at uh, the burning bush, right? God is calling Moses into this great ministry that's going to turn him from the guy who ran away from Egypt into Moses, right? Into Charlton Heston coming down the mountain, right? And so God says, hey, I need you to go tell my people and bring them out and blah, blah, blah. You know, the whole thing, right? You know the story, probably. And uh, Moses is like, well, you know, I don't know if they're going to believe me that you really sent me. All right, fine. Here's what we're going to do. You know, like I'm going to give you the, the, the sign of the leprosy where you can put your hand in your thing and it'll come out leprous. You put it back in, it'll disappear. Uh, you know, your staff will turn into a snake. I'll say, well, okay, fine. That works. But you know, I'm just, I'm not that really, I'm not good like public speaker, you know? And so God's like, well, I'll give you Aaron, you know, and he'll, he'll be the mouthpiece for you. And I'm always, I just don't know. This is like the anger of the Lord burned. I forget exactly how it puts it, but you know, God gets pretty upset with Moses, uh, in Exodus, like that's three and four right there. Right. And then my fine, fine, I'll do it. You know, uh, but Moses, right. He's, he's literally standing in the presence of God, giving him excuses why I don't want to do what you want me to do. Um, another example, this is the last example I'll give you is Saul, right? King Saul before King David. He's, uh, Samuel tells him, hey, wait there. Don't go to battle yet. Wait for me. I'm going to come do a sacrifice, then we'll do our thing. 
Samuel doesn't show up when he's supposed to or wherever he's a little bit late. And so Saul goes, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the sacrifice. And he does the sacrifice. And, and this is in 1 Samuel 15. And it actually says, though, that like the Lord rejects Saul. And Saul, but when Samuel confronts Saul about this whole thing, he just comes up with excuse after excuse. Well, it's the people's fault. They wanted, you know, it's like you weren't here. It's everybody's fault but mine. And that's the reason that Saul was rejected. These excuses, they don't cut it, right? Making an excuse with God, really, like he doesn't know what's going on in your heart. Like God isn't, uh, like God is some dude that you can just trick. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So that, what we're going to read today is this, a couple of stories, or one story of a couple of guys with some of these kind of excuses. Now, let me just set the context, right? We, we talked about this last week. Jesus is in this new phase of ministry, and he's heading towards Jerusalem, right? In verse 51, I think it said, when the days drew near for him, to be taken up he set his face to go to jerusalem so it's time for him to die rise and then ascend back into heaven where he can take his throne as the ruler of the universe right and so as this is happening he's in this new phase of ministry he's heading towards jerusalem and if you remember the flow the way this has worked jesus talked to them about i'm not the messiah that you were expecting right you guys have admitted that you know that i'm the messiah but i'm a different kind of messiah right I'm not the powerful king. I'm the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. I'm the, I'm the, the servant king in the upside down kingdom. And you guys, as my disciples, you're not called to greatness, but you're called to weakness. And that's what's really going to make you great. And you need to pick up your cross and you need to follow me. And the idea here is very simple. Following Jesus is a big deal. But at the same time, following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus is costly. It'll involve suffering and it may be painful. It will make your life better and more peaceful spiritually, but probably it will make your life worse and harder from a worldly perspective. There is no easy believism when we're talking about being a real disciple of Jesus. And so you can imagine, right? A lot of people are going to hear this and think, oh boy, that, I mean, take up your cross, really? And like they knew about crucifixion. Jesus didn't pick that illustration out of thin air. This was a real thing. And so for him to say, take up your cross and follow me was a big deal. And so a lot of folks are just like, I don't know about this. I don't know if I want to do this, right? I don't want my life to get harder. I want my life to get easier, right? I don't want to work in the upside down kingdom, but I want the benefits of salvation. And so Here's my excuse. I have to tutor my nephew or whatever from Seinfeld, right? This is the kind of stuff they're trying to pull with Jesus. So there's three of these excuses and three of these guys. So let's read each of the three. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So they're going along the road, right? So they're the last story that we just read at the end of last week was the rejection in the Samaritan village where you know, they tried to find somewhere to stay and nobody would put them up for the night. And so James and John are like, let's call down fire from heaven like Elijah did. And let's burn these turkeys. And Jesus rebukes them and laughs and calls them the sons of thunder. So they're a little bit down the road from there. And somebody comes up to Jesus. Now, in Matthew, we're actually told specifically that this person was a scribe. So a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we were talking about scribes. But let me just explain it again. We don't really have scribes in our culture, right? And when you hear the word scribe, you think of somebody who just copies, you know, like a typist or something. That's not what it was. A scribe was more like a lawyer, right? So, but in their world the the world of religion and um, civil law was all jumbled together and mixed together and so these guys were kind of like theologians and lawyers all rolled into one these were the smart guys who spent a lot of time studying the scriptures and they worked 
uh, for these religious institutions. So this is an important dude, and this guy probably knows his Bible pretty well. And we don't know this guy's story, but he comes up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, um, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a bold statement. That's a big commitment. Something had happened in this guy's life that made him come up to Jesus and say this. Maybe he had been healed by Jesus. Maybe somebody he knew had been healed by Jesus. Maybe he spent his whole life studying the law, studying the prophets and the books of wisdom. And when Jesus starts teaching about the suffering servant, maybe that stuff really hit home because he knew his scripture so well. We don't know. But he comes up to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. It's, that's a huge deal, right? Like I was just watching a movie where this guy um, signs up to go to the army. And um, while he's in the recruitment office about to sign the papers, I remember thinking, man, that's like a big deal to just say, you know what, I'm going to join the army, right? And they can send you wherever you go and you are no longer in control of your life. That's basically the level of commitment that this scribe here is committing to, right? And he is okay with Jesus sending him wherever. I will follow you wherever you go. Um, here's another like little bit here. Think about this just from a worldly perspective. Adding a scribe to Jesus's group of followers, that's kind of a big deal. That'd be pretty dope, right? Um, there's this, there's an interesting trend jumping to our context that I've noticed recently. And I mean, you know, I've been thinking about this more recently, but um, uh, it's really interesting to watch what happens in the Christian world every time a celebrity makes some sort of a profession of faith, right? People in the Christian world just go absolutely bananas. Steph Curry's a Christian. Oh man, sorry, something in my eye. I've been trying to get it out, but it's not working. I pour water in it, but I don't think that's going to do the trick, right? My LaCroix is not going to, don't pour that in your eye. Anyway, people go absolutely bananas when some Christian or when some celebrity makes a profession of faith, right? Steph Curry, Kanye West just did his Jesus's King album. And we just all went bananas forgetting that at the same time, like I think this guy struggles with mental illness and like a lot of his life is really sad and we should be praying for him. Um, Justin Bieber, whatever, right? And we celebrate not because a sinner has come to faith, but because a celebrity is validating our belief system as if celebrities are the ones who have it all together. Um, like an earlier example, if you remember way back in, I think it was like the 60s when Bob Dylan pretended to be a Christian for a couple of years, you know, or made a profession of faith and, and then kind of said, ah, I wasn't actually a Christian or whatever. Um, here, Jesus is facing that similar kind of situation. It would be super cool for him to add a Justin Bieber or a Kanye West, uh, this scribe into his group of disciples. Um, and it would give him some instant credibility within the religious environment in which he finds himself. Scribes were well-respected. They were smart. They were pretty high up in the ladder um, in Jewish society. And if Jesus's goal <clears throat> was to expand his numbers and grow the kingdom of God, what a better way than to have this guy come along, right? But look at Jesus's response. This is fascinating. What Jesus does, and this is kind of the whole point of the sermon here today, Jesus doesn't like easy believism, right? What he does is he really challenges this guy and he gets underneath this, I'll follow you wherever you go. And look what Jesus says to him in verse 58. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What? So it's kind of a weird answer. Look at the flow. This guy comes up to Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go. I want to make this big commitment to you to be one of your disciples. And then Jesus starts talking to him about Disney animals, right? Foxes and birds and whatnot singing around Snow White. Or, you know, actually, I've never seen Snow White, but I think that's what happens, right? Um, 
what what is he what is he talking about he's like foxes have a place where they can go hang out at night and birds have a nest where they can chill and kick back have a beer and eat some worms right that's what jesus says but then he says this but me i have nothing that's what jesus says to the guy now we talked about this a bit when we talked about taking up your cross and following jesus and we we read that whole passage there but it's worth saying it again if you want to know what it's like to be a part of a movement uh, look at the life of the leader odds are you're never going to do better than the life of the leader so whatever that leader is doing that's the best you can probably expect now let me give you an example i see these kind of videos all the time on youtube they're videos about financial success and stock market strategies and all this stuff and most of these systems are about like how to deal with your money. And then at the end, the guy says, I can make you a ton of money if you follow my system in the stock exchange. And my guess though is if you Google most of those guys, you'll find out that they live in their mom's basement and they eat a lot of Hot Pockets, right? <laughs> and so you're like, how am I gonna, <laughs> what? Uh, you know, you want me to follow you, but this is the best that you can do. Now, if you saw that, right, and you knew who these guys really were, you would think this is baloney, right? This guy doesn't know how to make money because uh, he, if he did, he would have the money himself and he wouldn't need me to pay him for this system, right? Um, it, you know, it's like I saw a video that was like, how to get a million subscribers, how to get a million views on YouTube. And the video had like eight views, you know, or something. It's just, it, it's not, it doesn't work. And so Jesus is challenging this scribe by telling him, look, if you want to know what it's really like to be in the upside down kingdom, look at the king. Look at the upside down king because your life is not going to be better. And he goes, birds have, you know, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but I, I have nothing. What's Jesus's point there? See, Jesus doesn't just say to this guy, come on, yeah, you'll follow me. I'm pretty glad that you're going to follow me wherever I'll go, right? That's great. Welcome to the team, buddy. That's not what he does. He challenges him. And at first, it seems like Jesus is throwing this statement about I have nothing out of, out of left field. What does his answer have to do with this guy's commitment? Well, obviously, there's more going on here than we see in the text. Um, Jesus is going underneath the surface and challenging something that he sees in this man's heart. Look again at the flow. The guy says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, even if it means you'll be broke and have nothing. And so it seems like this guy wanted to follow Jesus as long as it didn't mess with his bottom line, as long as it didn't really affect his bank account. He didn't want Jesus. He didn't want to follow Jesus wherever. What he really wanted to do was add Jesus to the things he already had in his life. And so Jesus challenges that, right? He gets right to the man's heart. Really? You're going to follow me wherever you go, even if it means it's going to cost you everything? Are you going to be broke and homeless, right? Uh, now, that's the first guy. Now, potential disciple number two. Let's see what happens and let's see how Jesus reacts. Verse 59. So that's the first guy. Here's the second guy. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So uh, in the first instance, the scribe came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. This grand declaration of discipleship. Uh, with the second guy, though, things are a little bit different. Jesus comes up to him and gives him the invitation to follow him. Now, let me say two things about this guy. First, and it, it may seem obvious, but I think it's worth saying, if Jesus invited this guy to be a disciple and to come along, it means that this guy somehow was around Jesus. And where is Jesus at this point, right? He's not in a city where he's been like setting up and having a home base like when he was in Galilee. He's on the move. And so the implication is that this guy here is traveling with Jesus with this wider group of disciples. These people who are sort of like... Um, 
Who's that group? Uh, Grateful Dead, right? And the deadheads would follow the Grateful Dead around her. Like, don't people do that with fish, that man fish or, you know, whatever. Like, this, he's one of these guys, right? He's following Jesus around. He's like one of these groupies or whatever. Now, the second thing is there's more to the story than we're getting from this brief telling. Um, because there aren't really any examples that we have in the Bible of Jesus almost walking up to people who are super antagonistic towards him and saying, hey, dude, you should be my disciple, right? That's not, we don't really see that. There's no moment um, when he's arguing with the Pharisees or Sadducees, which we'll get to later in the book of Luke, um, where he gives sort of a personal invitation the way he does here. And so on some level, we can kind of assume that this man has been following Jesus and he is interested in the things of the kingdom. And when Jesus saw him, Jesus invites him, hey, dude, you should follow me. You should go all in. Um, and so what does this guy do? He gives Jesus an excuse. Dude, I got to tutor my nephew, right? He says, first, let me go bury my father. Now, Jewish burial rites, and if you remember from the, the raising of the widow's uh, son at the town of Nain, when Jesus brought that guy back to life, um, Jewish burial rites were a big deal, and two things are at play here, right? The first is these Jewish burial rites um, and how important that kind of stuff was to these folks. They were the, they were broken up into two parts. The first part is like the, from the funeral at the town of Nain. They would bury somebody in sort of an above-ground tomb, and then after a while and after the decomposition, they would go and they'd get all the bones together, and they would put the bones in a box called an ossuary ossuary, ossuary, however you say it. Um, and it's interesting, actually, they found Caiaphas. I think I told you guys that before, but recently they found Caiaphas, the high priest from this time. We have his bones in that ossuary box um, in Israel. They dug that up and it said Caiaphas, the high priest, whatever, on the side of it. You can Google that. It's really fascinating stuff. But anyway, so so the burying of, of somebody was a two-part process that took some time. Here's the other thing, though. Here's the second thing. This guy's dad is not dead. Because if he was dead, right, the, the burial rites happen quickly, right? We got to wrap up a dead body and then take them to that tomb, right? Remember the story of Lazarus, right? Jesus shows up. He's already in the tomb. All that stuff has already happened. Jewish people did this stuff very fast because it's very hot in Israel and you don't want a dead body lying around for a long time, just practically. And so they would get them into these tombs, like wrapped up and covered in spices and everything pretty quick, right? Like Jesus was in the tomb the night of his death. It's the same thing. And so... If this guy's dad had died, he wouldn't be on the road with Jesus, right? If there was no time between a death and a burial for this guy to go, hey, actually, I'm going to go take a trip. And I'm going to walk with Jesus. So what is this guy asking? He's not saying, oh, man, I just got a text and my dad died or, you know, somebody called me in the family or whatever. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, let me go home, take care of my parents until they die, probably, receive the inheritance, then I'll be a disciple and I'll follow you. So do you see what this guy did? He took two very good things and then he used them as excuses to not go all in with Jesus. Funeral rites and family obligations. Now, is there a way to do that stuff and follow Jesus? Of course there is, right? If there wasn't, God wouldn't have told us that family is important. God wouldn't have said, you know, honoring your parents is one of the Ten Commandments, right? And that's what this guy was using, though, as an excuse to not really follow God, right? That's the problem. It's These were good things that then this guy was twisting to, to say to Jesus, look, I'll follow you, but not right now, right? But first, first, that's the key word, right? First, let me go. It's It's something else before Jesus, and that's the problem. Something else and then Jesus. And so look at Jesus's challenge to him in verse 60. 
And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, that's kind of a weird phrase. What is Jesus talking about? How can a dead guy bury another dead guy? I don't understand this. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, most scholars agree that this is probably a play on words. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. If you're more concerned with that stuff than you are with discipleship, then you're probably spiritually dead. That's how important the kingdom of God is. It's everything. It's so much more important than all of this other stuff. Not that that other stuff isn't important, but in comparison, being a part of the kingdom of God is huge and everything else is small potatoes. And so if you're saying, let me do that first and then I'll get to this, it means that you don't really get the kingdom of God. It means you don't really understand it. You don't really get what's going on. Like, let me give you illustration, right? Let me give you a little picture here. Imagine for a second that there's a married couple and the marriage is on the rocks and the wife books a therapist for Thursday afternoon. And she says, look, honey, I really want to get this worked out and I love you, blah, 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 right? We're going to go to this therapist and hopefully this marriage counselor or whatever, hopefully things will work out. So she tells her husband, we've got this appointment. It's on Thursday afternoon. And the guy says, oh, I can't do Thursday. I got to pick up my dry cleaning. Let's do it. And I was, we'll get to it some other day, right? You don't have to schedule another appointment. We'll figure it on down the line. What would that really tell the wife, right? What, what's the message that she should get? You're not really that important to me, right? This marriage is less important to me than dry cleaning, right? My priorities are completely out of whack. But if the marriage was his ultimate concern, he would leave his dry cleaning, right? And he would run to this, this appointment. It's not that dry cleaning is not important, right? You should always pick up your dry cleaning. Um, I'm going to be honest. I have nothing. I think I get dry cleaned. I mean, like a suit every now and again, but I only wear a suit like every couple of years. So anyway, picking up your dry cleaning is important, but in comparison to a marriage, it's nothing. And that's Jesus's point. And so Jesus is saying, dude, like you're doing this. It's not that this stuff's not important, but in comparison, I think it means you don't really get it. And so Jesus challenges him, right? Um, wait, let me show you again. It says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, right? This is a bit of a side note to our sermon today, but I think it's worth taking a second and talking about it and seeing. Do you see how the call to follow Jesus and the call to proclaim the kingdom of God are connected? It's kind of the same thing. Jesus doesn't ask this guy, follow me, um, and that's it, right? He asks him, follow me, and then proclaim the kingdom of God. And that's part of the problem, is following Jesus means real life changes. It means doing things that are hard and working in the mission and being a part of the upside-down kingdom that costs money and time and energy. And um, it, it's hard, right? And so I think a lot of people wish that following Jesus meant receiving salvation sort of fire insurance and avoiding the punishment of hell and the punishment of God and these, right, and like the horror of hell, I guess I'll say, and then just kicking back here on earth, enjoying the good life and waiting for heaven. And if that's what the call of God really looked like, then our pitch as followers of him would be a lot easier. But that's not what the call of God looks like. Again, the call means, the call of God means a difficult life of humility and service, and it may involve suffering and taking up your cross and following Jesus. But at a bare minimum, right, even if your life doesn't end up like not every Christian is constantly suffering, right? But even if your life is okay, at a bare minimum, following Jesus means being a missional person. And by that, we mean being the kind of person who loves neighbors and who invests in people who can't pay you back. 
right? That's what this is about. It, it's talking about your faith with people, serving people. That's the bare minimum that this call involves. All right, so that's Jesus's challenge to this guy, right? Is basically like, well, if you think that burying your parents is more important, that's probably because you're spiritually dead. Now, that's guys, that's, you know, we've got guy one, we've got guy two. Let's read uh, the third dude. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. So another guy comes to Jesus and says, look, I want to follow you, but first I, I got some stuff to take care of. Let me just go say goodbye to my family. Now, his request seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Let me go say goodbye to my family. Again, in the ancient Near Eastern world where family and clan meant everything and individualism basically meant nothing, this stuff was super important. And what this guy was asking was not only normal in that day, but it's what would have been expected, right? Somebody never would have left their house and followed Jesus and been a disciple and took off like that without first you know, telling their family where they were going. And, you know, they didn't really have a mail service. You couldn't write letters quite the same way. It was like a lot harder. Somebody had to carry the, you know. So you would go and tell them what's going on, right? Um, but even more than just that, it was kind of a normal thing in this culture and an important thing in this culture. This guy actually had the Old Testament precedent on his side. So if you look at the footnote in your ESV Bible there, um, and it's probably in the other versions I didn't look, but anyway, it'll take you to 1 Kings 19. And just like um, we read you know, in, uh, we read about Elijah last week, right? So much about the story of Elisha and Elijah uh, show up, like are alluded to um, in the Gospels. And this is one of those areas. It takes you to 1 Kings 19, where <clears throat> Elijah, who was the older one, comes to Elisha and uh, calls him to be a prophet. <clears throat> oh man, my liqueur is out. Anyway, and um, Elisha, is in the field and he's plowing and you know elijah comes up and says hey dude come you know be my assistant and then you can be a prophet you know i'm calling you to this life and to be my successor and elisha says okay let me just go home and tell my family goodbye real quick and he does now that's kind of a biblical precedent for what's going on here we'll see in verse 52 in a second that jesus you know in the last verse here jesus doesn't let him and again something is going on in this man's heart just like with these first two folks it's not wrong to say goodbye to your family and then follow Jesus, but for some reason, it would have been wrong for this guy to do it. People have speculated why, right? There's a lot of reasons folks have guessed. Maybe uh, he wasn't really going to come back, right? And he just didn't want to say no to Jesus's face. Oh, let me just go say to the goodbye to my family, and then he just had no plans to come back. I actually did this once when I was a kid. I was at this camp, and... Um, there were like these excursions at the camp. It was like a family camp kind of thing. I was there with my grandparents and I was kind of off on my own and I accidentally got put together with the wrong group. And they were all going off on this like canoeing excursion or something like that. And what I realized I'm with the wrong group, but I didn't want to admit it. I was embarrassed to admit I was with the wrong group. And so I told them, oh guys, can everybody just wait for me for a second? I forgot something in my room. I'll be right back. And then I went back to my room. And then when they weren't looking, I found my actual group and went on my excursion. Later on that night for dinner, one of the guys from that first group came up and yelled at me in front of everybody because what happened was they all waited around for me to come back and I never came back, right? And it took them a long time to eventually realize I wasn't coming back. Like, all right, let's go. That kid's not coming back, right? Maybe that's what this guy is doing, right? Oh, let me just go say goodbye to my family, <laughs> right? And then he's just, um, you know, he's going to take off. 
that's the first option, right? Well, maybe he was, some people think, well, maybe that's not it. Maybe he genuinely wanted to follow Jesus, but if he goes back, his family's going to talk him out of it. And, or maybe part of him is hoping his family would talk him out of it. We don't, we don't know. Whatever it was, this was an excuse. And that's why Jesus responds like this in verse 62, the last verse of chapter nine. Uh, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So again, like in that Elijah story, when Elijah comes up to Elisha and says to him, you know, follow me, what Elijah was doing, Elisha was doing, he was out there plowing, he was a farmer, and he was out there getting his field ready. And uh, in the end, he ends up killing all the cattle that he used to plow. There was a big party, so everybody in the area could have some food and eat, he gave all the food away, and then like he basically burned his bridges, right, and his 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 way of making money used that to benefit other people, and then he followed um, followed Elijah. But anyway, the Jesus was pro- that guy was probably alluding to that story earlier, and so Jesus now is like, oh yeah, you remember that story? I'll use an illustration from that too, right? The idea of plowing, and so he uses this illustration of plowing to kind of get at this guy's heart and to teach him. Now, plowing, we don't know what this is. We live in San Francisco, right? We don't know plowing, but plowing is the process, right, where you take the little sharp something, you dig it in the dirt, and you drag it. And kind of, you know, it mixes up the dirt so that you can, um, you know, plant your seed and all that stuff. And so the way it worked in the ancient world was you would have like an oxen or two uh, pulling the plow and you would stand behind it with kind of the the reins or whatever. And you would try to go your best um, in straight lines because if your line was off a little bit, you're wasting farmland and you didn't want to waste farmland. And so you couldn't look to your side and everybody in this world would have known this super easy that we don't really get but anyway you couldn't look to the side because as soon as you it's like driving on the freeway as soon as you start looking at the side of the road all of a sudden you're in the other lane ah come back it's the same thing when you're plowing right you can't you have to look forward when you're plowing so you can keep in a straight line but also like a lot of these fields israel a lot of the soil is very rocky um if you remember from the parable of the soils we talked about that but a lot of the soil is rocky and you don't want to run your plow into a rock because you could crack it and you could break it and that would cost a lot of money so you can see Jesus's point something about this guy's answer is he was using his family to take his eyes off the prize something was distracting him something about let me go home and say goodbye to my family was distracting him from moving forward in the kingdom and Jesus's point is super simple you can't work in the kingdom if your focus is somewhere else you have to keep your focus on him you have to keep your focus forward and then at the end here where it says um, look what it says no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God right now we have to be careful what that means is it like a better translation could be as useful in the kingdom it doesn't mean worthy like if you're looking back you don't get to be in the kingdom right you don't get to be saved whatever what he's saying is he's not saying you aren't good enough he's saying you're no good right you're not useful right if you're if you're distracted and you're not really like with your eyes on the prize you're not looking forward there's no you can't be used in the kingdom of God. And that's a big difference. So I want to clarify that. But that the goal of discipleship is mission, is the mission of the kingdom, is you have work to do and that work is in front of you. And something about this guy's answer was, he was saying, no, I don't want to do that work, right? I don't want to move forward in the kingdom of God, right? But we were, we're called to preach and spread the gospel. And if we're not all in, we're, we're not useful to Jesus. All right, so those are our three dudes. It's a pretty simple text. The big question, right? Here's the million dollar question. What happened to these three guys? I don't know. It doesn't say. Isn't that interesting? We don't find out any. Did the first guy 
did the scribe follow Jesus? Did he say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to sell everything and I'm going to follow you, right? The second guy, um, did he go home and take care of his parents or did he follow Jesus and let his brothers and sisters or somebody else do that, right? Did the third guy go home to his family or did he stay? What happened? We have no idea. Why didn't Luke give us the answer? That's a big question. And I think the answer is pretty simple because the point is, and he'll do this later on. He does this a few times, like with the parable. We'll talk about this a lot with the parable of the um, prodigal son. He does this. It's open-ended. And the idea is you are all three of these people. And so the question isn't what did they do? The question is what are you going to do, right? Luke is using this story to challenge you. As you read this, what what are you going to do about your excuses? And what are you going to do about committing to Jesus? Um, There's a guy, his name's Kyle Eidelman, and he wrote a great book um, that I really like. It's called Not a Fan. Um, And uh, this book, um, well, let me give you the premise of the book. Uh, He basically says, look, there's, there's two kinds of people who are around Jesus. And, you know, just in general, right? There's fans and followers. And the truth is, a lot of people who say that they're followers of Jesus aren't really followers of Jesus. They're fans of Jesus. And that's different. And there's an illustration Eidelman gives in the book. He says there's some dude who's like a soap opera star, I think, that goes to his church. And he's an actor. And one day he was hanging out with this guy at something where there were a lot of soap opera fans. I don't know. I don't watch soaps, right? But anyway, this guy's an actor or whatever. And all these fans knew all these facts about his friend. Uh, the soap opera star. Oh, he's born here. He went to high school, yada, yada. All this stuff Kyle didn't know. But Idleman, this guy, Kyle Idleman, he was saying, but I knew the guy and they didn't know the guy. And there was a difference there, right? He had an actual relationship with this guy. They didn't. They just knew facts about him. And so what what Idleman says in the book is, he goes, and I think this is the first chapter, he, he kind of really gets into it. And he says, look, a lot of people need to have a DTR with Jesus. And what that is, is if you if you don't know what that is, it's like the define the relationship moment. Um, and you know that like um, if you, like when two folks are dating, right? At some point they have to sit down and sort of define the relationship. Are we really dating? Are we moving towards marriage? Where is this headed? Are we exclusive? Yada, yada, right? They have that define the relationship moment. And he goes, the problem is a lot of people are just fans of Jesus and they've never moved from fan to like relationship. They've never had that define the relationship moment. And I want to read you this quote from his book. He says, most of us don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in our lives, uh, but Jesus wants to turn our lives upside down. Fans don't mind him doing a little touch up work, but Jesus wants to do a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus thinks overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking about a makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. That last sentence is so money in the bank. I'll read it again. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. That's these three guys is they just wanted Jesus to sort of be an inspiration. And on some level, they wanted to follow Jesus. But odds are they're what Kyle Eidelman would call fans of Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't want fans. I don't need them. They don't help. They're not part of the kingdom. Right. I I don't need fans. I need followers. That's what he's after. And that's the difference. Right. Not just, oh, we need Jesus to inspire us and blah, blah, blah. But we need Jesus to like wreck us and build us back up. And so that's the challenge to you, right, is to is don't be a fan of Jesus. 
right? Don't be like these three guys, right? Stop with the excuses and completely surrender your life to Jesus. Um, Idleman has another part of that book where he talks about um, like how big the universe is. And I love that. And he says, like, he kind of goes into like, I forget the numbers, you know, like basically like the numbers of how big the, the observable universe is are staggering how many stars there are billions and trillions of galaxies and yada yada and it's just and that's just the part we can see and the part we can see might even be the smallest part of the whole universe and he says like if jesus is the one who holds all of that together right think about how great he is and that's not somebody that you can ask to be the assistant manager of your life right that's somebody that you have to ask to be your lord and that's the challenge right don't be a fan be a follower don't tell Jesus, I kind of like some of the things about you, but completely surrender your life to him. And this comes into play. I want to give you two areas where this really can come into play. The first is just with your own personal, individual faith and your walk with the Lord. And I want to challenge you and ask you this question. What are the excuses that you have for not growing in faith? Right? Why why didn't you grow in the last couple of years as much as you should have? What what are your excuses? What are your excuses for not going all in, for not completely surrendering yourself? What I want you to do is just really take time and think about that. But here's the second thing. Not just your personal faith, but your corporate faith, right? You're not just an individual saved and heading towards heaven completely on your own. You're part of a community. And our community is a little bit different for a couple of reasons. We're small and we're a church startup. We're not a regular, just sort of a normal functioning church. And being part of a, a team that's launching a church means there's a higher level of commitment being part of the porch, right? Being part of this launch team. And COVID gave us a lot of reasons to sort of relax a bit and slow down. And we talked about how God has given us this, this season um, and that, that slowing down is not necessarily a bad thing, right? And uh, we talked about sort of like rhythms of life and peace and a lot of that stuff. We talked about that earlier on when I did the vision sermon. But at the same time, as we start to pick things up again, and I said this like at the beginning of the sermon, how we start to meet, we're going to start to meet next week. Um, being a part of the porch going forward is a big commitment. It's going to take time. It's going to take money and resources to keep us going. It's going to take energy, a lot of energy. It's a lot more draining to be a part of a church plant than it is to be a part of sort of an established church. And it's going to take a lot of your love as the biggest thing we're asking you to do is to love and to serve your neighbors and to be more of a missional person than you basically have the capacity to do on your own. And so this kind of church, right, planting this kind of missional family church isn't going to work if two or three people are a little bit in and everybody else is kind of a fan, right? But it can work with a large group of people who are completely sold out and uh, like completely um, uh, involved and ready to go and willing to sacrifice. But again... I'm not asking you to do this and to give this big commitment because I'm selfish and I want my church to succeed and, you know, we need our church, blah, blah, blah. Just last week we were talking about what a horrible attitude that is to be competitive with other ministries and to be selfish. That's not the kind of thing we want to be. But we want this church to succeed because we feel called to do this 
and because this is how we are serving in the upside down kingdom, right? This is our avenue to go all in and be disciples for Jesus, is to be this kind of missional family loving church who serves our neighbors. And this is how we're going to work in his kingdom. And so part of that going forward, though, and being part of the plant team is a real commitment um, to to the porch and to what we're doing here. And so as we move into the summer sessions next week, and I am really looking forward to seeing you guys next week, um, is um, we want I want you to be committed, right? I don't want you to be sort of half in. Um, and like I said, that's going to take time. It's going to take money and, and energy, especially. It's going to take you loving your neighbors, all of that stuff. It's going to be hard. Um, but but I need your, we need your commitment, right, if our church plant is going to succeed. And I'm excited about what the Lord is doing, and I'm excited that for the most part, when I talk to you guys, I don't really get a sense that uh, oh, I don't really want to do this, or man, I you know I just want to go to church, or you know like I'm kind of lazy. I don't get a sense like I get from reading these three people, right? Well, let me do this first. Let me do that, right? For the most part, we're, we're in. Um, but I just want to give you that reminder that like it's okay that this is hard. It's okay that this is different, but this is what we're doing for the kingdom of God. And I'm really looking forward to the summer, um, these summer sessions, Sundays at 1030, um, and, and studying and praying and singing together and hopefully growing as a church and growing in our love for the city. And so I'll close in prayer, and then I'm really excited to say these next words. And I'll see you guys on Sunday morning for church again. Amen. All right, Lord, we thank you that you haven't called us to be fans, but that you have um, called us to be followers. And we admit, Lord, that we are great at making excuses about why we shouldn't grow, why we shouldn't uh, invest our time and resource and energy into something like church planting. And, you know, we're, we're great at not being... Um, like sold out for you. And I just pray, Lord, that um, that you would forgive us um, of our laziness and our, um, our sloth, you know, and um, just our lack of commitment, and that you would not, um, that you would bring us along and, and make us more like you, but, but not out of guilt, Lord. We don't want to serve in your kingdom out of guilt, but out of joy and out of, um, uh, just a passion to see your name glorified in San Francisco. And so I thank you for the porch and I thank you for just the calling you've placed on my life. And, um, you know, as me and Melissa planted this church and started thinking about this years ago, I thank you for the way that you have brought this real group of weirdos together um, who, you know, just, I mean, we don't really have any other reason to get together except for the fact that we all love you and we are all followers of you. And Lord, we know that we have an uphill battle in front of us. And I just pray, um, you know, just like Melissa and I did when this thing started, we have no idea where people are going to come from. And it's the same thing going forward, Lord. We don't really know how this church is going to succeed, but we know we want to be sold out for you. And we know that you have what's best in mind for us. And so we just pray that you would do your your work among us with your Holy Spirit and that... Um, this summer would just be an amazing time of uh, growth, both, you know, just spiritually as we're learning more about you and corporately as we're, um, as we're, um, you know, like getting our church back together, but also Lord, just like in kingdom wise, we ask for growth that people would come to know you through the way that we love them. So we look forward to being back together and worshiping your name next week. And, 
Um, I just thank you for this group of people. We love you so much. Amen.